for those of you who were there at the wedding yesterday, you know, Rex, as a fresh after, no, senior year in high school, became a Christian. And I was there when he became a Christian. And I remember ministering with him all through his college years. And there are several of you that we ran together in the race of faith while we were in college. In such a pivotal time for, for believers to trust, for people to trust in Christ, to grow in Christ, and to give themselves completely for the work of the Lord. And uh, we are really excited, Bob and I, as uh, leaders here, to see this ministry get started. We, we implore you this week to be on your knees for all the people there, for all the leaders, and for that ministry, and ask your full support. Let's can pray one more time before we get into the Word. Well, Lord, we just want to lift up to you Turning Point, and we just want to ask for your hand of blessing, hand of empowerment and strengthening. You would grant Bent and all the leaders to have vision, um, a biblical vision for the ministry that will really have a heart for souls, for the lost, and for believers as well, that they would shepherd and care and love the flock of God, these young, precious men and women, and that they would challenge and equip and strengthen them uh, to, to, to pursue after you. We pray, Lord, that you would, um, you would enable the leaders to set a firm foundation and that as you build a church and build this group, that your name uh, be praised uh, among, among them. We just uh, thank you for them and thank you for the ministry. And at this time, we commit um, this time of the word, God, to you that you would grant us attentive, clear minds that we might understand these truths and appropriate them to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're going to <clears throat> do a two-part study, maybe a three-parter in Romans chapter 12 as we take a break from our study in the Gospel of John. It is a blessing for me to go through different passages in the New Testament, Old and New Testament, and to do a study on topics that are very, I believe, pertinent to the church at Cornerstone. Let's start by telling you guys about um, Elizabeth, and I'm sure it's true for all the parents here. If you have a child, you understand what I'm talking about. It's so amazing to see your baby grow week in and week out. Um, every week, it seems like she's a little taller, a little stronger, a lot heavier. Right? Even her clothes, she's going through her clothes every week where we have to put away clothes where she's outgrown them. Um, even to the point of um, just her being able to eat solid foods now. And we see her mouthing words. She said actually, Mom. Debatable whether she meant to say it or not, but I think we both heard it. And it's amazing for us to see that. And it's almost as if growth is automatic for a baby, for a child. All we have to do is feed her, clean after her, and she'll just grow day by day. It's an old adage, and it's true. Growing old is not an option. <clears throat> but growing up spiritually <clears throat> is definitely an option. Growing physically is automatic. But whether you grow spiritually or not, <clears throat> it's not automatic. It is contingent upon various factors according to the Word of God. That being the case, I want to ask you a question. Are you at all concerned 
about your spiritual growth? Are you at all concerned about your spiritual growth? You don't have to be concerned about growing old. We're all, we're all growing older. But are you concerned about your spiritual growth? First of all, I believe any Christian who is really walking in the Spirit would say to himself or herself, I want to be spiritually mature. That's the heart of a believer. If that's not in your heart today, then something is desperately wrong, seriously wrong with your faith. Any Christian would say, I want to be a godly man or a godly woman. I want to be all that God wants me to be. I want to ask you this morning, are you serious about your Christian growth? Are you serious about it? If you're not, then maybe you should go to turning point. Right? And turn. Because isn't it about time that you got serious about your Christian growth, your spiritual growth? If you are serious, then we need to get back to the basics of spiritual growth, the fundamentals. Guys, to excel in anything, in any skill, in any trade, in any profession, one needs to have sound fundamentals, right? There are many analogies from sports. Everything from golf to basketball to softball, any good coach will drill his players on certain basic fundamentals. They will spend countless hours on a particular skill of a sport, whether it's dribbling a ball, shooting a ball, batting practice, working on your swing. You would do it over and over until you become proficient to excel in that sport. You know, when I first came to the States, uh, my mom wanted me to play a certain instrument. My sister learned to play the piano, and my neck wasn't flexible enough for a violin, so I played the cello. You know, I remember carrying that 900-pound instrument <laughs> through the streets of Koreatown to get lessons. In the heat of the day, I wanted to burn that thing. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> I was an obedient son. I practiced, you know, diligently for six months. And after six months, I learned how to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. <laughs> ten different ways. I kid you not, I would do those mindless drills over and over again. So I have an appreciation when someone can play an instrument. Right. When, when I see someone skillfully play an instrument... I can in a greater way appreciate because I know that person has spent thousands of hours drilling himself or herself in practice to be so able to play a certain instrument. I heard of a story after hearing a master pianist, an audience member said to that pianist, I'd give my life to play the piano like you. And the pianist replied, I did. My life is piano. That's all I ever do. I gave my life to be able to play the piano in that way. If we want to excel at anything in life, we know that nothing is free. To advance to such a level of excellence requires dedication, personal sacrifice, and much self-discipline. Well, that is also true in the spiritual dimension. You want to grow spiritually? You have to pay. It's not free. Now, salvation is free. Salvation doesn't cost us anything. It costs God everything. But for us, it's free. But sanctification, to grow as a believer, is not free. You have to pay. You have to sacrifice. You have to discipline yourself. You have to commit. 
You know, I think some of us want to go to sleep one night and wake up mature. Right? You know, go to sleep and wake up deep and profound. Right? Wake up skilled in ministry, spiritually discerning and spiritually mature. You know, sometimes, yeah, you know, I, I would like that. Man, go to sleep, wake up, all my sermons are prepared. All the ministry decisions are made. All of you guys are mature. But guys, we know that that is wishful thinking at best. If you think that's going to happen to you, you need a reality check. That one day something will happen. You will get it. You'll be zapped. That you can be lazy, be in sin, and come here, and in a moment, have a quantum leap in your spiritual growth that is wishful thinking at best. You are sorely mistaken. It is not automatic. It does not just happen. You need to pay the price. The hard work of spiritual growth. It is not automatic. Or we need to get to the fundamentals, the basis of the Christian life. We need to master these things to grow as a Christian. Now, what are these fundamentals, the basis of the Christian life? Many think it's word, Bible study, quiet time, reading the scriptures. Some people think it's fellowship. Some people think it's prayer and evangelism and so on and so on. And people think if we just force ourselves to do these things, just just force ourselves to memorize the Bible, to study the Bible, just constrain ourselves to pray, then we will change and grow. Now this, guys, listen. Listen very carefully. This is where the athletic analogy, the music analogy, differ from spiritual growth. If you want a good... If you want to get good at basketball, you just train mindlessly. You want to get good at piano, you just practice mindlessly. But not in the Christian realm, not in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm, these are not the basics. I am convinced that mindless performance of these outward acts, Bible reading, scripture memory, witnessing witnessing prayer, are just the surface, externals, they're merit badges, they're decorative. What is truly needed to grow and mature in life, character, and faith is having biblical attitudes that replace sinful attitudes. That's the foundation. Those are the basics. Those are the fundamentals. Let me read to you from Pastor John MacArthur. He writes this in Master's Plan for the Church, quote, The goal of a pastor and the leaders of a church should be to generate proper spiritual attitudes in the hearts of the people. They can't just say, you need to do this and you need to do that. They must generate the spiritual attitudes that will motivate people to proper behavior. A church should work on the attitudes of its people. He says, I'm not interested in trying to make sure the people of Grace Church behave a certain way by giving their money, by coming to church on Sundays, Sunday evenings and Wednesday nights, pray five, five hours a week, read the Bible every day. Those things are not to be approached on a legalistic or superficial basis. The emphasis must be on generating proper spiritual attitudes. If the right kind of spiritual attitudes are present in a church, The church will take care of itself. Spirit-controlled people are going to do spirit-led things. They will naturally conform to the biblical pattern of the church. What is true for the church at large is true for the individual Christian. 
The issue is not how many hours are you praying or how many chapters are you reading. If a Christian will have biblical attitudes, they will naturally conform to biblical behaviors. Beloved, we teach a class called Fundamental Doctrines of the Christian Faith. Well, this morning, let me share with you the fundamental attitudes that are necessary to grow as a Christian. Fundamental attitudes that are necessary, pivotal, to grow as a Christian. Now let me give you guys a quick definition of, of attitude. Alright, maybe your parents have given you a lot of definitions about attitude, but let me give you the Webster's Dictionary definition. A person's state of mind. A person's inner mindset regarding some matter. When we talk about attitude, we're talking about the inner man, the thoughts, the ideas, the beliefs, the core values of a person. And we can go to many scripture verses throughout the Bible to study the key attitudes necessary to grow and mature as a Christian. We can go to 1 Corinthians 13 about love, 1 Peter 5 about humility, Ephesians 4 and 5 about spiritual obedience, Philippians 2 about humility. The list goes on and on, but there is a jugular text on right spiritual attitudes in Romans 12. If you will turn with me to Romans 12. I want to spend our next weeks just studying this one chapter. The whole chapter is filled with the kinds of attitudes you and I need to mature as Christians. Now, before we jump into the text, let me give you a short introduction to this book of Romans. This is the shortest outline you ever hear in the book of Romans. Chapters 1 1 through 11, Paul presents... The key truths of redemptive history. Chapters 1 through 11. Salvation history. He is presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he is, it's not an, it's not, he's not, this book is not evangelistic. He's not trying to convert anyone. He's preaching to the church and explaining to the church what happened. We were Gentiles without, without hope. Outside of the covenants. How did we, how were we saved? Romans 1 through 11 expounds on the mercy and grace of God and how we were saved by Christ. In Romans chapter 12, we find that great transition to the transforming power of the gospel. Paul says, in light of God's great mercy, he has that great word in verse 1, therefore, chapters 12 through 15, is the Christian's response to God's mercy. The appropriate response of every Christian to the mercy of God given to us on the cross. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, there are less than 10. You know, I actually counted this when I first studied this. I counted less than 5, about 5 commands in the first 11 chapters. Because the purpose of 11 chapters of Romans, first 11, is just to present what God had done. But in chapters 12 through 14, you'll find over 32 commands what we are to do in light of the gospel. Paul applies for the readers in chapters 12 through 15, 11 chapters of great theology and doctrine. He applies it for us. Let's go to the text and look at these key fundamental attitudes verse 1 and 1 and 2 therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy 
to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Again, that first word, therefore, is so important. It must be given its full weight. Paul wants to show that these exhortations fully rest on the theology of chapters 1 through 11. And I want to point out that in the Greek, verses 1 and 2, is just one sentence. In your English translation, the NIV does this. It, it makes it two sentences. No, in Paul's mind, this is one thought, one sentence. Therefore, another way to state verses 1 and 2 might be this way. My paraphrase. We can present our bodies to the Lord as genuinely holy and acceptable sacrifices only if we renew our minds and we, only if we do not conform to this world but be transformed. I mean, that is, I believe, a, a faithful rendering of the Greek text. It's one thought of Paul. Because it is one sentence, the first point comes from verse 2. The first point comes from verse 2. Paul's main thrust in, in this sentence is that Paul commands us to renew our minds. Paul commands us to renew our minds. That's Paul's basic thrust here. He's saying we need an attitude adjustment. We need a paradigm shift. Our old way of viewing the world, our old way of viewing God, our old way of viewing salvation and spiritual growth, we need to cast it aside. It's no good. It doesn't work. It is not biblical. We need to set that aside. We need to renew our minds with the Word of God. We need to reject our old thought patterns and adopt new ones. It is a major change, a quantum movement in mindset, a quantum movement in attitude. This kind of paradigm shift is seen in the world too. You know, a long time ago in hospitals, doctors would do surgery with painted and germ-ridden hands and instruments. I mean, they would do open surgery and not knowing that germs existed. With dirty instruments, without even washing their hands, they would do surgery and patients would die out of infection. And they had no idea why the patients were dying. It was not until Louis Pasteur discovered that germs are alive in these instruments in people's hands. That that is what caused deadly infections. Once they realized germs, bacteria, and viruses caused these infections, they had a paradigm shift. A new way of thinking. They changed their conduct and behavior. They meticulously washed their hands and their instruments to prevent infections and patients were no longer lost. Countless thousands of lives were saved because of this. Well, that is what God is saying here. That's what God is saying. We can't just jump into our Christian lives with our old ways of thinking and expect change in our behavior, to, ex to, to expect a ch that we will have long-term growth. No, we need to do um, surgery on the inner man. It is not outside in, but it is inside out. The old truth that private victory precedes public victory. That is what Paul is saying. That we need a renewal of, the, renewal of our minds by being transformed by the truth. 
he's saying that all our battles are primarily ideological in nature. This is where the war is taking place. Our war is not out there somewhere against the world, against Hollywood, against the sins of this world. No, our war is within. That we look at our enemy every morning and wash our faces. There is our enemy causing us to think in the old pattern of ways rather according to the scriptures. We need to renew our minds with God's words. Put off our old attitudes, our old thoughts about God, family, fellow Christians, about forgiveness, about self, about the world, and we need to adopt scriptural attitudes on all these things. We need to throw away all our old ideas and experiences. All that we held dear. Cast them aside if they're not of the Word of God. And we need to adopt what the Bible has to say concerning these things. That is why we emphasize doctrine so much in the church. Here lies the reason for the importance of doctrine, of right doctrine. And let me illustrate this. You know, many years ago, my wife and I were starting out in our family, want to settle down, and we, we were looking into buying a home, and somehow God led us to a, a foreclosed townhome right here in Anaheim. The tenants didn't um, pay their mortgage for over six months. This guy, he let the place go. I mean, there were animal droppings all over the carpet. There was, I mean, Shane, you were there when you first walked in. I mean, you could smell it. As you walked in the place, there was marks. I think it was playing ball against the walls, literally. I mean, it was, that's how you know, uh, um, just unkept it was. Serena, when I first showed her the place, she wouldn't walk in. She said, we're not buying this place. This is, this is an abandoned property, James. What are we, we going to do, live here? And I said, just trust me. <laughs> we bought the place. Well, you know, we got it fixed up. And the last thing we fixed up was the backyard. I mean, it was full of weeds. I had a full of weeds. What am I going to do? Now, you know, guys, your elder is not a dummy, right? <laughs> Trust me. I think I'm somewhat smart. I didn't go out there with a shovel or some pruning tool in a 100-degree weather to kill these weeds. Why? Because after I pulled up these weeds, cut them down, what's going to happen? Because the roots are still there. They'll simply grow up again, right? Within three weeks, within a month and a half, the weeds will come back. I know that, right? Do you know what I did? Went to Home Depot. I bought the super duper heavy duty industrial strength weed killer. Powerful stuff. You can't even, you know, touch it with your hands. You have to wear gloves, right, when you handle the stuff. Alright. This weed killer didn't kill the leaves, the stem, but it goes to the root. It bypasses all the parts of the plant and it goes to the root. And by killing the root, over time, the whole plant dies. So I put that stuff out there and every morning I got some coffee and sat out there and had a, a perverse gratification to wake up <laughs> to see these weeds in my backyard die. Die weed, die. <laughs> well, see, a lot of Christians go through behavior modification. They're changing on the outside. They're pruning the leaves. They're cutting the weed, weeds. But the root is still there. The root is still there. There are sinful minds, sinful patterns of thinking. Therefore, 
over time they revert back to sinful behaviors and do not experience true and lasting growth. Well, that is what the Bible is telling us not to do. Forget about the leaves. Forget about your merit badges. Forget about behavior modification. Go deeper. Go underneath the surface. Destroy the root of your poor behavior. And what is the root? It's sinful beliefs. Unbiblical attitudes. Unbiblical thought patterns. And how do you destroy them? How do you do that? You replace them with biblical attitudes. You can't destroy sinful attitudes. What we need to do is put off and put on. It's the idea of replacement. It's filling your minds with the Word of God so that these old attitudes will be replaced and set aside. It's a process. Biblical attitudes overcome the enemy not en masse, but one hill at a time. One thing at a time. It's a slow, long process. The command is renew your minds. The first attitude, the first attitude that we need to adopt to replace our old mindset is presenting one's life as a worship to God. Presenting one's life as a worship to God. Paul says, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. Brothers and sisters, this is the one attitude I want you to remember. You forget the other three. That's fine. Remember this one. This is the key one. This is the foundational one. This is the attitude that's required of every Christian. It's pivotal to grow and mature. It's the attitude of submitting your whole life to God, laying down oneself completely on the altar as a sacrifice to God. In the world we were taught that life belongs to us. We live to please ourselves, that we are the Lord, we are the Master, and that everything exists for our benefit. Well, the Bible tells us no. Our lives is not for our benefit. It's not for our enjoyment. The Word of God tells us our lives is for the pleasure of God. It's for the glory of God. Do you see how radically different that is? It is the attitude that my time, my energy, my money, my car, my house, my husband and wife, my children, my education, my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, my future, is all for God's glory, God's pleasure. Do you have that attitude? That's your life, not for yourself. That your life is but an instrument that you are to use to glorify God, to worship God. You know, our praise team, they use their voices to worship God. You know, some better than others, but they use their voices. That was a joke, by the way. (laughs) They, They use the piano, they use the guitar to praise God. Do you see that your life and all the things in your life, do you see that they are tools, instruments, that you are to use to glorify God? Your maturity lies in direct proportion to the degree you have this biblical attitude. How you mature is in direct proportion to this attitude. I mean, I think Paul definitely had this attitude, right? Acts 20, 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. 
If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, then my life means nothing. Only thing that matters is living for God, making an eternal impact, making my life count for God's kingdom. Well, Paul uses three adjectives to describe this worship. Three adjectives to describe the kind of worship. First, it is that it is alive. It is living. We're not giving things. We're giving ourselves. The sacrifice is us. We're not called to die for Christ. We're called to live for Christ every day. This worship that is alive. Second, it is holy. It is set apart. God is holy. We must be holy. It is an offering that is to be sanctified, set apart towards for Christ. I want to uh, emphasize a third adjective. It's pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. The first two adjectives describe the object of our worship, but this third adjective is different in that it points out the direction of our worship, the focus of our worship, that it is God-centered. Our whole lives is a worship that is to be pleasing to God. And therefore, because it is unique, this is the second attitude. This is the second attitude. And Paul, you know, God, God's word is so wise here. It's just so, so right. Understand this. God is not just concerned about worship. He's concerned about why we worship. See, this, this second attitude focuses on the motivation behind us giving our lives over to Christ. Why we do what we do. That is what Paul is alluding to, pointing out here. The motivation behind our worship, giving our lives not for ourselves, but to please God. This goes to the heart of the matter. Your motivation, my motivation, what drives us to worship God. Guys, it is said that worship can be done and is often done for selfish reasons. Isn't that amazing? You guys ever heard of this? That Christians, have you ever seen this? Christians actually serve God for themselves, for self-centered reasons? Is this possible? That Christians actually evangelize, praise, even pray for self-centered reasons? Isn't that shocking? But that's true. What is that called? It's called hypocrisy. It's called hypocrisy. We are not. The new attitude is, and the world tells us, do everything and spit it for yourself. You do it for yourself. No, the biblical attitude is, you do it for God. And your sole motivation is to please God. That's what drives you. You know, this is an often used illustration. You guys heard it many times. I've read Robbie Zacharias, Alistair Beck, and even John MacArthur all use this story. Uh, so I guess they use it because it is such a great story, so I'll use it also. Right. Story about Eric Little. You guys seen the movie Chariots of Fire? Great movie. Alright, drink some coffee before you watch it because the first half is kind of slow. But big payoff at the end. Right? It's a man, it's about a man who would die as a missionary in China. But the story is not about his missionary efforts in China, but as a runner in the Olympic Games. Alright. In the movie, his opponent is Harold Abrahams. And he runs solely for his own fame, 
for his own notoriety, for his own selfish gratification. That's the only reason he runs. To the point where he says, I will not run if I don't win. Right? Only reason he runs is to win for himself, for his pride. Because he loved winning. The movie contrasts Mr. Abraham's motivation with Eric Little's motivation for running. He's training for the Olympics. He's doing mission work with his sister. He comes to, he comes to the meeting late one night because he's trained for the Olympics. His sister questions his heart. And he says, Eric, what is this stuff about running? Aren't we going to China? Aren't we, are we going to serve the Lord? Why are you so into this running thing? What is your motivation? And Eric Little replies, this classic line. He says, God made me for China and I am going. But God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. Man, that's awesome. God made him fast. So when he runs fast, he senses the pleasure of God. So he runs because that's his worship for God. Because that pleases the Father. His joy is not in the gold medal. His joy is not in the fame or the notoriety. His joy is not beating other competitors. He runs because it pleases God. That is awesome. What is your motivation in your worship of God? I mean, God is concerned. You need to have a right attitude. Why you come to church? Why you serve the church? Why you evangelize your co-workers? Why you pray for your families? All the things that we do as believers, we must have this biblical attitude for the pleasure of God. Let's go to the third attitude, the final one for, for today. And that's found in, in verse 3. Verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. The key word here focuses on our attitude. The word is think. Right? Do not think of yourselves with more highly than you ought. Think of yourself with sober judgment. The verb there connotes not so much the act of thinking, but the direction of thinking. It is a warning to fight the old attitude of overestimating our own importance, having a high view of ourselves. Paul is saying, do not entertain exaggerated ideas about your own importance, your own achievements. Instead, Think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. What does it mean, measure of faith? It does not mean that God has given you small faith, therefore you can have pride. It's God's fault. God gave you small faith. No. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying that faith is the basic Christian faith given equally by God to all Christians. So our faith is the measure. It is the standard. Paul is saying that our humility must be consistent with the faith that we have in Christ. That we are justified by grace alone. By faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That our faith is we're not saved because of our righteousness, because of our goodness. It must be consistent with the fact that we are saved by 
by the merits of Christ alone. That the only reason we are Christians is because of Christ. We are none better than the worst of sinners. We are totally wicked. We are sick with sin. And without Christ, we would produce nothing but sin. Paul is saying our attitude should reflect that faith. Faith that we're justified by Christ alone. Beloved, if you believe that you are saved by faith alone, and yet you are prideful, you really don't believe that you're, fa- you're saved by faith alone. Right? Does that make sense? Right? If you say, I believe in Christ, that His righteousness alone saved me, yet you entertain attitudes of pride, of self-righteousness, right? of entitlement, then you don't really understand the doctrine of justification and you don't really believe, really don't. You might say it in your mouths, right, with your mouths, but you don't really believe in your heart that you are saved by faith alone. That faith pummels a Christian's pride. Faith that Christ saved us while we were undeserving, it destroys our pride. It deals it its death blow. It teaches us that we can't take credit for any service rendered in the church. Any achievements in our lives, they're all gifts from God to us by His grace. Even our right doctrines. You know, for us to have pride about right doctrine is so wrong. It's given to us by grace. We didn't create right doctrine. We didn't discover it. We didn't manufacture it. It was given to us purely by grace. For us to have pride about that, it's inconsistent with our faith. You know, several years ago, you know, I reluctantly share this. Uh, I hope you guys take it in the right way. Uh, a young sister, a high school student, came to me and asked if she could interview me. And her assignment was to write about someone um, who, who, she, you know, who she looks up to uh, and who's still alive. So I guess all her heroes are dead. So she chose me. Um, she, one question she had was, what have I accomplished for the Lord? What have I accomplished for the Lord? And at that time, we were studying through the Gospel of Matthew. I think we we're at chapter 24 of the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm so glad. Because before, my stu- before our study in the Gospel of Matthew, early in my Christian life, if someone asked me that question, I would have rattled off a list of all my accomplishments. I would have said, you know, I went to this mission trip, that mission trip. I did open-air preaching. I would have listed off converts, their names, you want, you want to call them, and you can talk to them about how, they say, how I was used to save them. All these merit badges, I would have rattled off to her. By the grace of God, I had a different answer for her. Far different and far simpler. I told her the truth. Nothing. I have accomplished nothing for God. If there is anything of worth, anything that's good, anything pure, if I've taught anyone, if I've encouraged any person, God did it all. Not me. Because I'm a sinner. I'm just a recipient of grace. He receives all the glory. I did nothing. But all the sins that I committed in my life, all the people that I've hurt, disappointed, offended, that's my fault completely responsible because I'm a sinner. 
I produced them. They are my fault. Not God, not my parents, not the society, not my friends. It's all my fault. I say this not because I'm humble. I say this because it is true. That's the biblical truth. These are three key biblical attitudes. We'll go to part two next week. Um, that are foundational, pivotal for us to grow in our Christian lives. You know, raising a baby is hard. Who am I? I'm a father. I have no right to say that. All the moms should come up here and tell us how hard it is to raise a baby. You know what, you know what the encouragement is? Encouragement is they're going to grow. Right? We don't have to wake up every three hours. They're going to sleep through the night one day. I don't have to feed them you know, by hand and make sure they don't slobber. They're going to eat themselves. Right? They're going to one day dress themselves. They're going to get in the car by themselves. One day they're going to leave the household. Right? That's an encouragement. It is not permanent. But because spiritual growth is not automatic, isn't it scary? That 10, 20 years on the road, what if you're the same? I mean, if our child was permanently in that state of maturity, man, I'd be so, so awful, so discouraging, so difficult. Well, what about for you? You ever look 20, 30 years down the road, if your seriousness towards your own Christian life is at the level it is today, that can be a sad reality 20 years from now. And you'll still be a spiritual baby You'd have grown old, but you would not have grown grown up spiritually. May that cause in all of us a holy fear and a holy resolution to be sober and serious about our Christian walks. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is my prayer that the Word of God was given with a, a right heart, with a right understanding, that I am in no way preaching from, as someone who's arrived. I am preaching as someone who needs to take his spiritual life seriously, preaching from some, as someone who is still the work in progress in terms of my own spiritual walk. So I pray that everyone here heard it with that heart, that we're all in this together and we need to Grow together in Christ. Lord, we have so many unbiblical thoughts residing in our hearts that cause us to behave wrongly, that cause us to sin. Lord, help us through the work of the Holy Spirit to replace our sinful attitudes, sinful beliefs with the biblical truths of Scripture. That these truths might travel from our head to our heart to our hands and affect our living where we will live our lives to please glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.